from Hanover, welcome to All the Difference, Conversations with Dartmouth Changemakers. I'm Tracy Dustin Eichler, Director of the Dartmouth Center for Social Impact. Our Dartmouth alumni forge careers of impact and demonstrate that there are many roads to change making. As leaders and innovators across the social sector, business, and government, they make meaningful progress on our world's most complex challenges. And we want to hear all the ways they do it. At the Center for Social Impact, we educate Dartmouth students to become the next generation of changemakers. This podcast is for them and all those who seek to make an impact. Thanks for listening, and now here's our host, DCSI Assistant Director Henry Doe Rosario. On today's episode, I interview Sean Guerin, class of 2007. Sean is the Chief Program Officer for Vote Solar, a nonprofit advocacy group working across the United States to use solar as a tool for climate progress and energy, environmental, and economic justice. Welcome, Sean. Thanks for having me. It's exciting to be back. I want to dive into some aspects of your career and kind of personal trajectory. And in that vein, I'm hoping to start with the question of what social challenge are you trying to solve right now? It's a, it's a big question and hard to file down to one, but... Um, I think that I am someone who's deeply concerned about economic fairness and economic opportunity, the the chance for people to thrive uh, in our country. I think climate change is a huge opportunity to, to rewrite some of the way that our economy works, the way that our systems of power and politics work in the country. It's one of the most central challenges of our time, and I'm excited to use it not just as an opportunity to try and survive as a human race. Which uh, is great. <laughs> yeah, which is important. <laughs> but also one to actually rebuild, you know, build back better in the words of Biden. So uh, this seems very aligned with the current work that you're doing for Vote Solar, yes. which is a, an advocacy nonprofit. Can you tell us a little bit about your, your role there and, and what the organization is doing? Yeah. So Vote Solar is a nationwide advocacy group. We're a little bit unique in that we focus on state-level policy and regulation of energy and climate, um, but we do it across the country. So we have staff in like 23 states across the country working to exact major change at the state level there, and we carry best practices across all of those different regions and parts of the country. And so my job as the chief program officer is to oversee all of our folks in the regions across the country. Plus, we have a little bit of a a sort of in-house think tank and make sure that we are running as effective campaigns and um, interventions in electric rate cases and things as we can. Um, So that's my corner of the world and I think a pretty cool place to be Um, There's a lot of state-focused, state-level groups, and there's a lot of federally-focused federal groups, and there aren't that many national groups who are really looking at all 50 states and what the opportunities are there. That's really interesting because I I feel like, you know, energy policy in New Hampshire probably looks different than in New Mexico or California or Louisiana. So I'm wondering, you know, how did you end up there? You're now, you know, uh, over a decade, you know, well over a decade out of um, from graduating from Dartmouth. Um, what what did your path look like? Well, I actually started my career uh, when I was in college for a summer job, basically. And I was a 
student athlete when I was in school and didn't have a lot of time to think about what I was supposed to be doing for the summer. And so I realized my <laughs> freshman spring that I didn't have a summer job. And I pulled a little tab on campus that said summer jobs for the environment. Like a uh, physical flyer? Yeah, like oh, a wow. physical flyer. Amazing. I am a little old. <laughs> uh, and I showed up for the interview, and it turns out it was canvassing. So, like, flagging people down on the right. side of the street saying, do you have a minute for the environment? And trying to get them to donate to Greenpeace or the Sierra Club or, uh -huh. or you name it. Um, so that's how I got my start. And I fell in love with the people and the cause and just this idea that um, if you got enough people behind something, you could actually change policy, beat back oil companies and others, and um, deliver for the broader people. Um, and so that was where I got my start. And they actually offered to have me come back and intern in their D.C. office doing more of the actual legislative work. Uh, and then when I graduated, I went and worked for them full time. And so my career really started in D.C. and in uh, sort of unique position in, in that way as well in that I was the policy nerd and the lobbyist for a group that was really oriented around uh, organizing mm -hmm. and people power. That so that was my career start um, and how I ended up in the environmental movement. I care about the environment. I came to Dartmouth partially for the outdoors and being close to Vermont um, and New Hampshire and the mountains was a key ingredient for me. So the environmental work was really just a series of opportunities that arose um, over time. And when I saw the job at Vote Solar that I, I first started in the Northeast for them, um, running their Northeast program, and the thing that excited me was that there was this final connection that I'd been looking for for so long of using sustainable energy, renewable energy, to empower communities and to actually create economic opportunity for those that have been so poorly treated by our fossil fuel powered system. Um, and so it's like this light went off that I finally was getting to circle back to what I had as a high schooler cared the most about. That's amazing, especially that it started with a, you know, a physical little tab on a, on a yeah. Um, so you started with canvassing I, I haven't done this myself, but I, I hear that's a pretty tough gig. <laughs> it <laughs> I, is. You know, you're you're um, like one of those. I'm thinking of those high school summer jobs, like where you're selling knives or something door to door. Yeah. Um, it's it's tough. You're getting. I'm assuming a lot of no's, a lot of rudeness. But it it seems like you actually had a, a pretty positive experience or, or saw some kind of yeah um, you know opportunity there. Yeah, absolutely. I think. For me, it was really about the people I was working with. And you can kind of picture the people who are successful at canvassing are gregarious, outgoing, <laughs> charismatic, uh, passionate people, because yeah. that's what it takes to actually convince someone to give you money for the environment. <laughs> uh, and so I just fell in love with the people around me. And I was not from the start someone who actually loved canvassing itself. I, I didn't hate it. I was fine with the nose and, and sort of got used to it. Um, but that was one of the reasons why I shifted pretty quickly towards what are the other jobs here <laughs> that I could be working on. Um, but I just wanted to spend my time with those people. And I was so convinced that um, that type of empowerment, getting everybody to just chip in whatever they could, and then turning that into social change, that was like totally the bug that got me. Oh, that's really inspiring.
So, I mean, I, I want to come back. I'm going to put a pin in that and come back to kind of your early career and your career trajectory. Yeah. Um, but I'm curious uh, about you know, why did you care about you know, economic disparity to, to start out with? And, you know, why, where did that come from? Is that, you know, a family background thing? Is that something you explored at Dartmouth? Um, you know, why was that, you know, th- the issues that you were interested in tackling, why were they bugs in the yeah. first place? I <laughs> wish I could remember why it started in the first place, but uh, I actually started as an activist in high school. My um, freshman year, I think, of, of high school, my state instituted a statewide mandated test for graduation, uh, and it was the first year our class was the first class that our sophomore year we would take the test, and then if you failed, you couldn't graduate and the statistics were staggering around the disparities. If you grew up in a zip code that was lower wealth, lower income, or that was predominantly um, BIPOC, black, indigenous, people of color, you were massively more likely to fail and then to not get a high school diploma. Mm -hmm. And I was so taken aback by that because I had never considered a high school diploma as important. Mm-hmm. I was off to college. I knew that that was the path I was on, and I was much more concerned about that than thinking about, like, what would it matter if I got a high school diploma? Um, but I remember reading some of the interviews in the paper about people talking about how important and transformative a high school diploma is for those who, um, you know, whose path isn't going to send them to college or a trade school or some other next step. And it really struck me that my incredible privilege was going to protect me from this in so many different ways. Mm -hmm. And other people without those same privileges were just getting hit by, you know, every step of this process. And so I ended up boycotting our our statewide test and I didn't graduate from (laughs) high school. Sure enough, it did not matter because Dartmouth (laughs) took me anyways. Um, That's incredible. Yeah. And... (laughs) that was that first moment of realizing like I need to use everything that's been given to me to try and make sure that other people have those opportunities and that like privilege is not something that is so massively unequally spread in our society as it is now. Well, I I mean, I love that you brought up privilege, but I I just have to highlight that as an 18 year old or 17 year old, (laughs) whatever you were to really put your money where your mouth is. I feel like that, that is quite impressive. Yeah, um. it is uh, amazing to think back on, and especially I, I thank my parents every once in a while for that, because I'm like, how did you let me do that? <laughs> it is really staggering to think that they said, sure, that seems like a fine idea. Yeah, I mean, good to have supportive parents. Yeah. Uh, pretty key. Uh, but no, I, I want to get back to, to privilege, because I feel like that's something that is you know maybe just now or, or more recently. Um on the minds of many students here at Dartmouth. You know, this yeah. is, at the end of the day, a pretty privileged institution in terms of the resources that we have and, you know, the, the history and the network and all that. And I feel like, you know, students are wrestling with that, you know, I don't know, privilege versus responsibility or, or some kind of tension there. Um, yeah. Did you navigate that while you were on campus and, and how and how, do, how are you thinking about that? Yeah, it's a great question. And I don't think there's any right path the system that we live in, our, our culture and society is so unequal and unjust in so many deep ways that you can't navigate the system without tripping on some injustices <laughs> yourself yeah. and uh, causing others. And so I don't know that there's a right path, but um, I think one 
core thing that I've tried to keep in mind is just to be grateful for everything that I have and try and be consciously grateful for everything I have because Mm -hmm. it makes it so much easier to identify those things and then to think about how you use them, how you spread that um, privilege, that wealth to other people, you know, just trying to stay conscious of the good that you have in your life is really key. And um, it sounds cheesy to like be grateful, but, <laughs> uh, but as a career metric, I actually think it's a really powerful one um, to think about. And my husband said this last night at the, the conference that you have hosted uh, that I thought was really profound of just thinking about the assets that you have in your life and really trying to focus on how you build from your strengths. Mm -hmm. I think that's really powerful and true. And the same goes for privilege. Really be conscious of the privileges you have and try and think about um, how you use them, if you use them, the ways you use them. No, I I love that. I think that's a really great way to to capture, um, you know, some kind of formula for navigating that that metric or uh, that tension. Um, But I'd also say that my college career, I mean, I mostly was just having a lot of fun <laughs> I did sport you know I was a rower for a couple years but I quit that and then just like cruised through college mostly having a blast and waiting for the summers and the internships when I got to go and actually deliver on my life's mission and so I would also say there's no right path through college and uh-huh. I took what a lot of people would have described as a bad one I wasn't a great student I you know didn't volunteer 24 7 um, my husband did all of that much better <laughs> than I did. Uh, but as soon as I graduated, I, I definitely course corrected a bit. <laughs> yeah, well, let's unpack that because, you know, students now or, or maybe, you know, for the last couple decades um, have felt an immense amount of pressure to do all the things during college to because yeah. if they don't, they're not going to be able to take some kind of first step out of the gate after graduation. And you're you're in 07, your your husband's in 08. So I'm trying to remember back. We've had we've had so many now, but I think there was an economic recession <laughs> around yeah. then, wasn't there? Yep. <laughs> Maybe a great one. Um so w- was that, you know, you know, I know you graduated bef- before that, but was that weighing on you in any way, you know, the the kind of uh the pressure to deliver, you know, financially or to, you know, yeah. establish economic stability or something like that? Uh it definitely did. It, it was a very sort of big part of just culture back then during that moment with Lehman Brothers collapsing. I had lots of friends from Dartmouth whose jobs were lost during that period and other friends who couldn't find jobs. They just weren't out there. Um, I would say one of the benefits of the nonprofit world is that it actually tends to thrive in those moments (laughs) because that's (laughs) when the need is so massive. And uh, the reality is in our unequal system that we have, like people still have money to give even in Mm. recessions and Mm -hmm. they do, fortunately, um, continue to give. And so it was interesting that for me, it all felt like a little bit at a distance because Mm -hmm. my job and my work wasn't challenged by that or I never thought it was really shaken to the core. Um, but I saw it all around me, and it was yet another moment of seeing just the way that privilege plays out where some people were seemingly getting richer, you know, getting mm-hmm. further ahead during this moment while you could see in the papers and see from your friends that a lot of people were really struggling. Well, okay, I, I said I'd circle back to your, um, you know, your career trajectory. You really 
acknowledged and and valued the power of community organizing or placing the community kind of at the center of the work that you were doing. And I think even, you know, Volt Solar's approach to making it state by state specific, and I think you have, you know, teams that are are really focused on um, tackling the issues for those specific communities and not kind of like broad strokes approaches. So why do you think that is? Is that something that you kept noticing throughout your career? Um, Any other lessons from, uh, I don't know, 15 years of of working in the nonprofit space? Because I feel like a lot of people get, yes, you know, they they truly fall in love with the the power of the people, um, but also, you know, there's a lot of time and and opportunities to get disenchanted or discouraged or or something like that. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think that it can be really critical to both believe in the power of the people and be focused on building power through people, um, but to also be really eyes wide open about the realities of our political system and Mm. about what it takes to win. Mm. And I've always been in an interesting position of being one of the people who was taking this people power and then figuring out how to maneuver that into the votes we needed, the co-sponsors we needed, the progress on policy we needed. And I think that's allowed me to have a realistic view of of people power mm-hmm. that has continued to blow me away by how important and how powerful it is. Um, but also not to be as I, I'm not um, at the whim of the ups and downs of like we lost this. And so it's, you know, is this not really powerful? Mm. Did we not organize enough? Um I've always been able to sort of see through the votes and understand like, okay, in this case, we didn't convince this person and here's how we could maybe do that different in the next, <laughs> you know, the next round yeah. or we didn't see this opposition coming and um, they beat us to the, the game. And so um, that combination of throwing your heart into this massive idea that you can organize people to change, but keeping your mind conscious of what the path is to victory and the fact that it's not totally straight and narrow um, makes it a lot easier to weather some of the storms, I think. Yeah, that makes sense. So so what does winning look like for you in terms of Vote Solar or, or just personally um, yeah. thinking about your career? Well, I've been in an interesting position in the last um, five, six years at, at Vote Solar, where we have really been shifting our mission to more incorporate um, economic equity and justice into our core reason to exist. And we have really turned and shifted uh, the organization in a major way to incorporate that into our mission. And so a lot of my work recently and a lot of my thinking is about how do you um, shift how do you change people organizations um how do you take a way of of making change in the world and shift the direction that you're trying Mm -hmm. to change the world um vote solar is uh like known for their technical and policy expertise they're known for being the ones in the room negotiating the details of um electric utility rate cases like what shows up on your electric bill and figuring out how to use that tool and tie it to communities, um, taking the lead from the communities who have been worst impacted by our fossil system in terms of what they want, 
learning that, developing that, and then turning it into the technical details and then representing it in the room, it is, it's a complicated challenge. Mm -hmm. And I've really loved taking that on. So a lot of my work recently has been very focused on internal change management and sort of strategic shifts for an organization. That's amazing. I'm so glad we're interviewing you. You have such a, a positive and optimistic outlet <laughs> and, a, you know, a realistic one, I think. On, that helps, on, too. Yeah. <laughs> but, um, you know, I do think, you know, a lot of people feel, you know, discouraged or disenchanted with institutions uh, or, or feel like they need to start something new. But, it, you know, it sounds like so much change can happen um, yeah. through organizations that already exist, through, you know, shifting um, slight shifts uh, within policy or, or how an organization is operating. One of the key things is looking for the people. So it's not just about um, thinking about an organization and is their mission aligned and does it seem like it's set up to take on the challenges mm -hmm. you want. Th those are important. Um, but I think at the end of the day, the more important thing is thinking about the people you're going to work with, the person you're interviewing with, or the one that you know that works there. And like, are they aligned with you? Do they feel like the type of people who will um, shift and change? Because that's been the thing I've noticed at Vote Solar is one of the ways we've been able to change as fast as we have is all of the people were sold on it from day one. And that made a huge difference. Yeah, that's amazing. You know, at, at the Center for Social Impact at, at Dartmouth, you know, we're, we're hoping that we're setting students up to, to be change makers in the world. Yeah. Um, which is, you know, no easy task. <laughs> <laughs> nope. uh, so for, for those students that, that see themselves in that light, uh, do you have any advice for them in terms of what, what maybe they should be doing during their time at Dartmouth or, or thinking about and, and maybe like early next steps out of the gate? I mean, I think in terms of your time at Dartmouth, I would just say try and really pour yourself into one or two things that you can develop a strong skill set and sort of resume around so mm -hmm. that you can say, here's uh, an example of something that I really did and the skills I brought to bear and learned through that process. Um, you, you know, coming out of college don't have a huge amount on your resume uh, that anybody cares about. <laughs> uh, but what you will have is an interview usually, uh, yeah. and that's an opportunity to tell a story about your impact. And so think about what is the story of my impact and how do I develop that in a, a compelling way? So I think a little focused passion and energy <laughs> uh, and trying to carve out sort of what your role is and specialize in that a little um, can go a long ways. And that role can change over time. So you don't need to say like, I'm a communications person now for the rest of my life. Right. Um, but being able to come out and say, you know, I nailed communications in this way for this organization or this group um, can be really powerful and a, an interesting story. And it shows that you you know, did what it took to, to make a difference. And then once you're actually looking, I think the people thing is, is critical. It's entry-level jobs come in a lot of different shapes and forms, and a lot of them are sort of dead ends. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, they're entry-level because there's entry-level type work that needs to be done, and the mm -hmm. organization or the company has decided that they're going to hire someone to just do this work. Mm -hmm. um, you want to avoid those <laughs> if you can. <laughs> And try and go work for people and spaces that are interested in developing folks, that are hiring entry-level people because they have some entry-level work to do. But more importantly, they're trying to develop future leaders. They're trying to pull people in and grow them. 
And a lot of that you can get from the interviews or networking, get a sense of um, is this boss, is this organization committed to the growth of the mm-hmm. people that they're taking on and only take jobs where that's the case because um, otherwise it's just really easy to, to lose a lot of time like doing menial work because that's what needs to be done. Mm-hmm. And that's important, but if you really want to grow and um, learn and develop, you need help in that. And the best people to help you are going to be your boss and your colleagues. Thanks, John. I think those are two really salient points. And I would say you're probably one of those people now, <laughs> one of those leaders that's attracting Definitely. talent and developing talent. So appreciate that. Um, and thank you for all the work that you do um, and Float Solar does uh, for our society, making some progress there. <laughs> uh, it was a pleasure speaking with you today. And Yeah, I, same to you, Henry. And thanks. Thank you for all the work you're doing at the Center for Social Impact. <laughs> I wish that it existed <laughs> while I was here, and I think I would have been listening to this podcast avidly. <laughs> I appreciate and that, And now John. I will. And we'll thank see you. each other down the road.